we are um, in the midst of uh, the story of Judges, and it really connects with what Kevin said in his introduction to the Ancient of Days song, and that is that God is in control of all of these nations. And, and there's nothing that's happening that is surprising God. There's nothing that is happening that he is not directly in control of, including um, bringing up nations to oppress his people, uh, to discipline them, to um, drive them closer to him. And, and we see that in this passage. Uh, this passage that I started last week is about uh, a man named Barak and a woman named Deborah. There's another woman uh, who's prominent in the story. Her, her name is Jael. And uh, these are the people that God is using. But it's fascinating. Deborah is really the person who, who is very um, willingly um, being used by God in the role that God has called her to. Uh, Barak, in an interesting way, is kind of the first step down in our judges cycle. The, bo- the book of Judges um, goes through this cycle repeatedly where the people of God sin. God himself raises up an oppressor for them. Um, that oppression will last a period of time until they pray. God will rise, raise up a deliverer who will bring them rest, and then they repeat the cycle again and again. But as we've mentioned, this is not a cycle that's linear. This is a cycle that through the book is getting worse and worse, and this is where the, the crisis of leadership within the nation is going to begin uh, to shine out, and we're going to start to see that it's more and more difficult to find a willing leader. In this story that we're talking about today, um, Barak is less than willing to step up and step into the shoes that God has called him to put on uh, and march into the battle. Um, he, he eventually gets there. Um, but from here, when we move to the next few judges, it just continues to get worse and worse and worse. Um, just to give you a sense that these are real places. These, these are real stories. These are not kind of made-up stories in some invented land. Um, this is the map of all that's taking place. Deborah is living in the, in the land of Ephraim, which is kind of in the south of the, of the promised land. These battles, though, are going to be taking place in the north. Um, there is a, a, a man, Barak, who lives up in the north, and Deborah is going to call him to engage in the battle because this man named Jabin, who is ruling uh, from uh, one of the very, very large cities at the very north of the land of Israel, currently would be right on the Lebanon border in Hazor. Um, he is uh, Jabin, this king. He's, he's oppressing the Israelites from the north, um, and he's controlling the whole land. And he's got an army general named Sisera that he activates to go into the land. And uh, I'll show you a little bit later that this battle is going to take place in in this uh, particular valley of the Kishon River. It's actually a place uh, in Israel right now where uh, most of the fruit is grown in that valley. It's a very, very fertile area. Um, And and what we started off looking at last week was this need for salvation. Um, And and their, their need for salvation is because they are outmanned, they are outnumbered, they are overpowered um, by this army of Canaanites that is uh, headed up by King Jabin and his army general Sisera. But in particular, that this is chronologically, it, it fits, and it's another 
um, indication that the Bible is trustworthy, um, where, when these events are taking place is really the very beginning of the Iron Age. Um, before this, there's the Bronze Age. There's a number of stages of that. But this is the beginning of the Iron Age. And, and what we find out is that um, it is these Canaanites who have um, developed iron chariots. Now, these are not solid iron chariots. That would be impossible to pull. You couldn't do that. They are iron reinforced. And in particular, um, these iron chariots probably have iron on their wheels, which in this very fertile valley would have made, um, given them a huge advantage, not only by numbers, but because um, they basically have the first version of a tank is, is what's going on. They're a chariot, they are reinforced with iron, and the Israelites have been disarmed. Um, our last judge was fighting with a stick. Um, now, God can empower them, um, but the, the odds are overwhelming. It doesn't look like there's any hope. Let's look at this passage. Again, the Israelites continued to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead, our last deliverer. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, when God's discipline comes, he's still sovereign over all of this. Um, this Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herashoth Hagaoim. It's over by the, the coast. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. It, it took 20 years of this oppression, this dominance from this king in the north and his um, his army general, who is now very well resourced, um, he is oppressing them. This is what's going on. This cycle is going to continue. Um, there are different people. Sometimes it's the Moabites. Sometimes it's the Amalekites. It's different people. Now it's um, a group of Canaanites um, and their general. Um, this is kind of the first time that the oppression is coming from within. It's not a, a foreign nation. It's, it's somebody who's living there with them. And what's going to happen is the Lord is going to raise up a hero. And there's a question in this story because we've got a number of key players. We've got Deborah, who is a prophetess, um, and she's calling Barak into action, and he's reluctant. And then what we're going to find out is that there's a woman named Jael, um, who's going to be an instrument that God is going to use. And the question is, well, which one of them is the hero? And my answer to you is that none of them are. The Lord is the hero of this story. Um, and we'll see that even more clearly next week when I show you some things about the structure of this passage, but also the song that is sung next week. We get the narrative in chapter 4, and the song is sung in chapter 5 that kind of celebrates. Um, you know, it, it's kind of, um, you know, it's not all over until the fat lady sings. Well, next week the fat lady sings, um, and she's going to sing this song of victory. Um, but the Lord is going to raise up a hero, but it is not who you think it's going to be. Here's how the story begins to develop. Now, Deborah, interestingly, her name means honeybee. J.L., her name is mountain goat. So God's going to use a bee and a mountain goat to be the instruments of his deliverance. Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, his name means torches. He's a guy who kind of lit up the room, it would seem, uh, because it's not a normal name. It seems like it's probably his nickname. Um, this Deborah was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, there in the south. 
And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Um, she's a, a woman who has a lot of wisdom, and, and people were seeking her out. And they were saying, help us understand um, how we need to settle these things. And particularly in this time of oppression, you can imagine, just think about it. You've been oppressed for 20 years. There's going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of issues that you're struggling with. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to negotiate them. And they would go up to Deborah to gain wisdom for, from her. So she sent for Barak. Interestingly, his name means lightning. Not sure that that's not tongue-in-cheek at this point as we see the story develop. But just, let's just remember that Barak is lightning, um, quick. Um, she sent for uh, Barak, um, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali. This is way up north by the Sea of Galilee. And she said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor, which is inland a little bit. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hand. There's a couple of things I have to point out to, to make a point that's really important here. First of all, the Lord is commanding him to do this. The Lord's, the Lord's not looking for volunteers. He's commanding him. You're the guy. Um, and the Lord is also saying, I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops, and I'm going to give them into your hand. I'm going to provide the victory for you. So it's, it's pretty clear um, Deborah, the prophetess, is speaking for God, and she's delivering the message. And she's, she is not the one who's going to be the judge. She's never called a judge in this passage. She's a, an admirable woman, but she's not involved in the military affairs. She's involved in dispensing her wisdom. Um, there's a surprise in the story, though. <laughs> and, and the surprise is going to develop a number of times. This, this is a very intriguing story. Because the Lord's going to use some very unconventional means in the story. Um, and it's all going to start with this leader. And, and in the whole book of Judges, they're looking for leaders. And they're, um, they're looking for leaders to, to deliver them. But the deliverance doesn't last because these deliverers have very little spiritual impact on the nation. And, and by the time we get to the end of the book, in the last three chapters of the book, literally no one has a name. You kind of know some of these names. I mean, I'm introducing you to some that you may not know, like Othniel and um, Aska and Ehud, Shamgar. Some names you probably have heard before, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. So there's some names throughout the book. By the time you get to the last three chapters, this book has degenerated and, and flushed so badly that at the end of the book, nobody has a name. They have lost their humanity so that no one has a name. Well, we're starting that path down, um, not with just a giant jump, but with a guy who's going to be a little reluctant. And so God's going to have to use some unconventional ways. Here's how the story continues. Barak said to her, remember, she said, the Lord commands you, and he's going to give the army into your hand. Barak said to her, I'm going to read it straight first. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. The Ken International Version. Barak said, if you'll go with me, okay, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. 
she stands up. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. The Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And at this point, by the way, if you're reading, you're thinking, and we know the story because we've read it before. But at this point, you're thinking, oh, gosh, Deborah's going to get the honor. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. She goes up north to where the battle is going to take place. Then Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. You're thinking, okay, they're, they're gathering for the... He's reluctant. He's kind of wimpy, um, maybe very wimpy. But, but finally, he gets the message. He gathers the army. They, they gather around them. But, but his question... Um, remember, God has commanded, and God has said, I will be with you. Um, but his question, if, if you'll go, I'll go. If you don't go, I'm not going to go. It's conditional. Um, I, I, I need to convince you that, that, that this is the beginning of the problems as, as the judges are going to begin to trail off in terms of their character and their integrity. We, we, we're finished with heroes at this point, okay? Othniel, heroic in my book. Ehud, heroic. Shamgar, questionable background and lineage. He's a Canaanite, probably from some group of warriors, but still heroic. Barak, Mr. Lightning, slow to respond. Um, just so you don't think I'm out here on a limb. Barry Webb says, Deborah's charge to Barak in verses uh, 6 and 7 indicates that he's destined for a role comparable to that of Othniel in 3, 7 to 11. She calls him in the same way. He does win a notable victory, but his insistence that Deborah accompany him already detracts from his heroic stature. He's going to show up, but he's going to do it reluctantly. Bob Chisholm says, in contrast to Joshua, who obeyed God's military commands to the letter, Barak answered God's commands with a conditional sentence. If you really, if you compare, and, and it really is, there's a huge comparison between the victories in, in the book of Joshua and uh, the limited, time-limited victories in the book of Judges. Uh, Joshua, God says, go do this. And some of the things God calls Joshua to do seem kind of crazy. March around a city seven times, blow trumpets. Ah, who wants, I mean, who, who thinks that's the right thing to do? Particularly around Jericho, which would have been a military fortress. Um, he goes on to say, however, one does not respond to a divine command and a promise with the words, if, or I will not. God has given assurance of a victory. Barak's hesitation was inexcusable. Um, he's not the hero of our story. Um, again, playing on his name, Kenneth Way says, Barak's name means lightning. But ironically, Barak fails to live up to his name as he always appears a step behind in following orders, a step behind in routing the, the enemy, and a step behind in slaying Sisera. Barak's not your guy, okay? Barak in the Bible. Let's get the story straight here. In the story, the Lord is going to sovereignly orchestrate the events of history to accomplish his salvation. Um, God, is, God has already said he raised up Jabin. God is orchestrating even the oppression and the discipline. But God's going to um, orchestrate the salvation, and it's not going to come from lightning. It's not even going to come from bumblebee. 
um, this salvation's going to come from another source. And there's a really interesting development that takes place here. So we've got, let me just review it on the, on the map. Um, Deborah is in the south in Ephraim. Barak is an army general who lives up in the north. And that's where um, Jabin and his general Sisera are. And um, Deborah says, I need you to mobilize the troops up north. There's going to be a battle. And God's going to be there and God's going to deliver. So it's, the battle's already set up. We know who the enemy is. Jabin, the king, Sisera, the army general. We know who God has called into the battle. Um, Barak. Deborah's there with him. And so they're gathering some troops together. Then we read verse number 11. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. What? Why do I need to know this? Why do I need to know some guy who's a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law has moved from the south. Moses' brother-in-law would have lived south of the land, even south of Ephraim. That's where they had settled. This guy, Heber the Kenite, has now moved up north. What's going on here? (laughs) This is just a, a random fact that doesn't really fit the flow of the narrative. Or does it? Del Ralph Davis says, The God of the Bible still injects those marvelous bits of providential minutia into the lives of his people. In what a wonderful manner God prepares for our deliverance. I want you to think for just a minute how many times God has provided the minutia in your life that looked like it was kind of a random fact that just appeared out of nowhere. But later on you realize, oh my gosh, this, was, <laughs> this is exactly what I had to have for this situation. Um, recently I was walking down the hallway, Chris Keir walks out of one of the huddle rooms because he was working on a class and his whole class was on this idea of forgiveness. And randomly in the hallway, Chris just says, Hey, we're talking about forgiveness and how um, forgiveness doesn't always mean the removal of the consequences that you, that, that forgiveness uh, really requires the person to repent and change before consequences are removed. That's even how God works. And I'm like, well, thank you, Chris. This was informative. We had a little conversation. I go back into my office and start working on the next thing I'm working on. The very next day, I get an email from somebody who says, I've got this situation going on, and we're wondering how forgiveness looks in this situation. And my conversation in the hallway from the day before was exactly what I needed to be able to clearly respond and just say, well, here, here's, I think, how this would apply. Uh, and I think it was a helpful response. The last two or three weeks have been particularly um, chaotic at our house. Uh, my mom has been in the emergency room four times in the last three weeks um, in such a way that I actually... I was able to communicate to my brother and my sister, you guys might want to come visit my mom. So she's been in the hospital. My uh, brother and his wife, my sister and her son have all come down to visit, staying with us. 
and we've had two college pastor candidates in town, and they, um, the first couple were staying with us as well in the midst of all of that. That's been happening over the last two weeks. Crazy two weeks uh, for us. And then there was a wedding last night that was absolutely fantastic. By the way, if you wanted to get married, last night was your night. Uh, It was beautiful. Um, We have some friends who were on vacation. We hadn't seen them for a while. We knew this busy strip, strip was coming up, and we thought, we've got one day we can see them. There's a Thursday where we can see them. So we wanted to get together with them and just kind of catch up on their vacation and, and connect with them. That day, Dawn came down with a bout of vertigo. And so we couldn't get together with our friends, who the next day tested positive for COVID. The God of the Bible still injects those marvelous little bits of providential minutia into the lives of his people. In what a wonderful manner God prepares for our deliverance. What's your story? What's the conversation that took place for you that you need to look back on and just go, oh, God, thank you for that? Sometimes it shows up like vertigo. (laughs) Not something you necessarily want, but it's something that God uses to protect you from um, us having COVID during a time when my mom was in the hospital, my family was visiting, we had, pa- we had uh, college pastor candidates in town. Guys, God is still in control, raising up oppressors, controlling nations. The Ancient of Days knows your name. He knows which conversations you need to have, at what time you need to have them, and he knows when you need to be saved from having dinner with your friends. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harashoth Agaoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Mostly this map is just to show you this is a real place, okay? Um, Sisera is um, over on the west coast, Okay, he's, he's at a high spot over there. Um, Barak is um, at Mount Tabor, which is inland. And uh, between these two places, there's this valley. And so Sisera is on the top of one high place, and Barak is on the other high place. But, but Sisera's got his 900 chariots, so he knows, I'm rushing through the valley, and I'm going to go take those guys down at Mount Tabor. Um, now, they're gathering together, and they're getting ready for this battle. By the way, you don't know the punchline of what happens until the song, okay? So I'm going to save it. Read it next week. You'll see what, what the real deal is. It comes out in the song, not in the narrative. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera. You'll see how in the, in the poem next week. And all of his chariots and the army by sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So these guys have marshaled their armies. Um, Sisera understands that Barak is up on Mount Tabor. And so Sisera is coming down. And Deborah says, go down to meet him in the valley. They go down to meet him in the valley. And the Lord routed Sisera. By the way, 
we're starting to get the little hint of who the hero of the story is. Certainly not Lightning, not Bumblebee. She's not even engaged. We're getting this hint that the Lord is the one who routed Sisera and his army. But look at this. Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled on foot. So he is running. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harashoth, Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Uh, the, the point here is they're, they're moving, and um, Barak's army is in the east. Sisera's army has camped in the west. They've come down to the middle, and now Sisera is on foot, and Barak pursues the whole army out towards the west coast. He's traveling towards the west. Lightning, but he's going the wrong way. Barak, caught up in the frenzy of the rout, has run the wrong way. Barak has gone west, but Sisera has escaped the stampede and gone in the opposite direction toward the east. He's going the wrong way because God's got another plan for Sisera. This is the stunning reality and the cost of salvation. The salvation the Lord brings is often violent and always costly. By the way, this is, I think, a little hint of um, what, it, what it means for us to be saved is going to be costly, <laughs> and it's violent. The, the death of Christ is costly. The death of Christ is violent. This is not um, for the squeamish. This is um, a real story. This is a war story. We're, we're, we're in the middle of war here, folks, and so I'm not going to hold back, but this is what the Bible says. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the guy who used to live in the south, he's now moved up to the north. And, and up in the north, um, Sisera finds this tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. They made this connection and made this uh, treaty. Gregory Wong says this friendly relationship thus paves the way for Jael's offer of hospitality to be accepted without suspicion. They had an alliance already. When when, um, Heber the Kenite moved up there, what he did is he said, hey, it looks like Jabin's in control up here. I'm going to make a a pact with him, and me and my family are going to pledge our allegiance to him, and then we'll be okay to settle in this area. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Kind of nice. We've got an alliance. He's feeling totally safe here. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. She's got a blankie. She's got some warm milk for him. Man, she is taking care of him because she's getting ready to take care of him. (laughs) Jael's provision of a blanket and of milk when Sisera merely asked for water probably further enhances Sisera's trust. Here's how Robert Chisholm says it. When he accepted her invitation and entered her tent, she began to show almost motherly concern. She covered him up, responded to his request for water by giving him some tasty and refreshing milk, and then covered him up again. Stand in the doorway of the tent, Sisera told her. 
If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no, because we've got this alliance. I'm safe here. I'm warm under my blanket. I have fled. Got a little milk and I'm feeling okay. Might help me sleep a little bit. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep under his blanket with his warm milk. And he was exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. I would think so. I think he got the point. Sorry. Next week in the poem, it's going to be so perfectly presented, you'll be surprised. We have no idea what's going on with JL. We don't know her motivation. We, don't, we, we really don't know. Here's one possibility. Mary Evans says, of course, this, as any other suggestion, is only speculative. It may be that unknown to Sisera and perhaps even to Heber, the wife of Sisera's friend, had a personal loyalty to Israel and to Yahweh, and she totally rejected her husband's alliance with Jabin. Perhaps like Rahab, she believed that as Yahweh had spoken, there was no doubt that Israel would be successful, and she wanted to protect her family by ending up on the right side. We don't know. All we know is this. J.L., mountain goat, She does the job. Just then, Barak, lightning, comes by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. A little bit late. You were running the wrong way. (laughs) Now you're back here. You're late. The women have taken care of everything for you. But there's a fascinating parallel that highlights where I want to land this story. When you, when you look at Ehud, remember left-handed Ehud and his slaying of Eglon? When you look at Jael and her slaying of Sisera, there's, there's both the, the whole pattern is there's a murder and then someone discovers it. There's a deceit. Ehud says, I've got a word from God. Um, Jael says, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. Um, with Eglon, he bends over to hear this secret message when he gets stabbed. Cicero falls asleep. Um, there's a, a makeshift dagger for this left-handed guy in the Ehud story, and a makeshift weapon, a tent peg. Um, each one of them is discovered by the attendees or discovered by Barak. The, the significance is Moab is going to be defeated, and now Jabin is going to be defeated. But in the middle of both of them, who's the hero? It's not Ehud. It's Yahweh. The hero of the story is always and ultimately God who subdues all of our enemies. This is the pattern that's going to be established. These leaders, um, Deborah's doing a good job. Jael does what she's supposed to do. Barak, hesitant. The, the leaders are going to get even worse. But here's what we read. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, of of king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This idea of the destruction is literally the word humiliation. They humiliated them. It's an interesting choice for a word. 
In the battle at the Kishon River, Jabin discovered the identity of the real sovereign king and God. The verb humiliated that is translated destroyed is kana. And it forms a sound play on the name Canaan, Canaan. Used three times in the phrase king of Canaan. It also draws attention to God's sovereignty over the hostile Canaanites. Jabin, king of Canaan, he was Canaan, the king of Canaan was Canaan, even though he was the king of Canaan. God humiliated this king because it is the Lord who's the sovereign hero of every true salvation story. He's the hero. When we get to the song next week, you'll see they don't celebrate Deborah or Barak or Jael as anything more than the right people in the right place. The song is celebrating Yahweh as the hero. God is the hero of all of our stories. So what do we learn from the narrative? The song is next week. Here's a few next steps if I try to frame these in some ways that provide some truth. Again, like I said last week, God's hands are not tied by hesitant leaders. Um, God, God can use hesitant leaders. God's going to use Barak. Barak still routes the army. But God's hands are not tied by these hesitant leaders. Um, but there's a warning. Hesitant leaders mar their own legacy. If you don't jump out and do what God wants you to do, he'll find somebody who can do it. And, and the honor may not be yours. The Lord's the ultimate hero, but you don't get to be the person who says yes I did what God called me to do. So my challenge to you is engage in the work of God, no matter who or where you are. Get off your butt. Engage in the battle. Whether you're a bee or a mountain goat or a lightning bolt, whoever you are, Engage in the work of the Lord. Whatever he's calling you to do, stop hesitating. Stop making your excuses. Stop giving him the conditions. Well, if this happens, if I get this much time, if, if I get the raise, if, if, I, if, if the Lord will let me work with somebody else, um, stop hesitating. Do what God has called you to do. And it's not my job to tell you what to do. It's my job to tell you to listen to the voice of the Lord asking you to be involved in his story. It's his story. He's the hero. Graciousness is all over the fact that he invites you to be a part of his story. At least it's packing a shoebox. But I'm telling you, that is so easy. How is God inviting you to be a part of this great story that he's the hero of. Get involved. Father, we thank you that you are so heroic. (laughs) Father, we thank you that um, you're patient with us. And even when we hesitate, you still let us be involved. Father, you've got heroes all over the place who are ready to uh, be involved in your story. And Father, you are so ultimately the hero. It is so clear. But all of the battles that we're fighting, 
they were all ultimately won by Jesus Christ. And in him alone, that's where our trust is. Help us to live out of that truth. We ask that in Christ's name, in his name alone. Amen.